0: Tēnā no mai, haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Australia is set to have a new Prime Minister. We will show you all the highlights from last night and tell you what it means for the future of the Anzac relationship. Then, fresh off a record health spend in the budget, Andrew Little tells us how healthcare in New Zealand will change
1: people in those sort of circumstances will find it easier to get to see somebody and not wait until they're so sick they have to go to hospital to get there.
0: And for all the hullabaloo over the budget, there was arguably a much more consequential document published by the government this week. It will
2: take changes, both large and small, that together add up to a better, a cleaner future, and that is what the Emissions Reduction Plan will do.
0: We'll have that story for you shortly, but first... Anthony Albanese has been elected as the next Prime Minister of Australia. Although it's not yet clear whether Australia's Labour Party will claim a majority in Parliament once all the votes are counted, Scott Morrison's Liberal coalition has been ousted from power. And one of the most interesting twists, the election saw a massive surge in support for green candidates and independents who were running on climate platforms. One News Australia correspondent Andrew McFarlane had a very late night indeed and is up again early for us this morning from Sydney. Kia ora Andrew, thanks for being with us. Just talk us through last night and a new government elected in Australia.
3: Morena energy yeah, here. Let's start off with how many seats Labor has already got in the can. They currently have 72 spots compared to the Coalition's 50, which is a big change on the 2019 election result. And the magic number here in Oz is 76. So still a little bit, little bit of a way to go there for uh, the Labor Party. However, you've got to remember they basically have a situation here where Scott Morrison could not form government. He just could not get enough seats to get across the line. So at around... last night, pretty early on in the piece. The pollsters, all of the election analysts were able to call it for Anthony Albanese and what is a pretty significant win. He will be the 31st Prime Minister here in Australia. And also, he comes from a fairly working-class background. He has a, a single mother who was on the disability scheme. He lived in state housing. So it is a big shift from Scott Morrison. Here's his plan, though, Mr Albanese's plan for Australia as he laid it out last night.
0: I want Australia to continue to be a country that no matter where you live, who you worship, who you love, or what your last name is, that places no restrictions on your journey in life. So that is Anthony Albanese, but how did Scott Morrison take the result? I can tell you the tone at ScoMo
3: HQ last night was polar opposite. I was uh, at a a ballroom which is probably about, I don't know, 100 so metres away from where I am right now and that was the headquarters for the party and the tone was very subdued. Uh, The room went very, very quiet as key seats were being called. And I think it became pretty clear early on it was not the night for the Liberal Party. Scott Morrison showed up at around 11pm as well and gave a concession speech. For someone who has spent a lot of of his campaign, a lot of his term as uh, Prime Minister, saying he doesn't hold the hose and there are a lot of things that have gone on that aren't his problem or his fault, he was taking responsibility for the
0: loss last night. To my colleagues tonight who have had to deal with very difficult news and have lost their seats tonight. I, as leader, take responsibility for the wins and the losses, that is the burden and that is the responsibility of leadership. And as a result, I will be handing over the leadership at the next party room meeting to ensure that the party can be taken forward under new leadership, which is the appropriate thing to do.
3: Definitely taking responsibility. Stepping down as leader is pretty significant, but also fairly expected under this campaign. You've got to remember the last three years for ScoMo have been marked by some pretty significant things. Yes, we've had COVID-19, but we had the Black Summer bushfires. We've had constant flooding uh, along Australia's East Coast too. And it sounds like those are things voters have been thinking about as they've cast their polls. Scott Morrison was the first leader since 2007 not to be rolled while he was in the top job. Of course, that all ends now with Anthony Albanese taking that that position.
0: Yes, the result doesn't bode well either, does it, for incumbents in a high-inflation environment. But what does this result mean for New Zealand, Andrew?
3: Yeah, we'll get into that. I mean, for New Zealand, right, this could be a little bit of a preview about what voters might be thinking about in Aotearoa, right? The cost of living is biting back home, as it is here in Australia, and that is one of the key election topics. The Vote Compass survey, the ABC does over here, they said that was a number one, and so was the climate too. But for New Zealand, Anthony Albanese has a very different set of priorities. One of the key sticking points between New Zealand and Australia is that controversial 501 policy right. It's the the law that sees people being deported if they're not citizens even if they've lived most of their lives here in Australia. Now, Kiwis have a weird visa situation, but it's been a really big controversy, and every time we have a minister or even the PM visiting Australia, it gets brought up. Now, ScoMo was proposing to make this law more strict. Mr Morrison was saying he wanted to see more people effectively deported under those rules, whereas Anthony Albanese is pretty happy to keep the rules as they are at the moment. So we won't see a change on that, and that could see a softening of trans-Tasman relations. But also, Jacinda Ardern is due to visit Australia very very soon that is one of her visits this year that is coming up pretty pronto Uh, she won't be meeting with Mr Morrison so who knows we could see a slightly different relationship here too also the other one is China right Australia has been arguably a bit more tough on China with Scott Morrison at the helm Anthony Albanese has been accused of being softer is that in line with the New Zealand government well we'll have to wait and see
0: One of the interesting dynamics in this election campaign has been the role of green candidates and independent, the so-called teal candidates. And they had some pretty extraordinary results last night, Andrew.
3: Yeah, everyone was referring to this as the teal torrent. And these are those candidates who are really saying, no, I'm not part of either of the big parties. And they've clearly resonated with Aussies here. There are several key seats where they've ousted incumbents. The biggest one would have to be Josh Frydenberg. That's the deputy Mm. Liberal leader over here. He now is out of a job and he lost to an independent candidate. Uh, it was tight for a period, but it's certainly been cooled now. And the independent candidates have been campaigning on some pretty, I would say, similar things. Right, climate change is a big one that they've said. They've said this is an issue we care about, and they arguably have more. Uh, radical policies in the two big parties but also many of these independent candidates are women too. Scott Morrison has a massive problem with women in this country after uh, his reckoning he's had around sexual assault in Parliament and also Anthony Albanese is, well he looks pretty similar to Scott Morrison too so there's a slight point of difference there that the pollsters think they have certainly cashed in on as independents. The Greens too have been campaigning on climate as you would expect and they've had a win in Queensland which has been hit by the flooding too. So there's this real suggestion that maybe these wins from these independents are just simply Mm. because they're listening to voters because they're not tied to the two big parties they've got a bit more freedom to really come up with policy that will inspire you remember David Pocock you had him on your show I think just last week his seat is too close to call in the ACT so there are still so many places where independents can have more wins as well
0: Andrew did the polling firms do a better job this time than they did in the last election
3: Yeah, you mentioned the P word around journalists and analysts here in Australia, and everyone kind of gets a shiver down their spine. They were notoriously wrong in 2019, and I think that was something people were watching just as closely last night as the results came in. And at the beginning, everyone was panicking. We had uh, ABC's major election analyst basically saying on air this was going to be a hung parliament, because the polling appeared to be so Mm. off. And on the primary vote, it certainly is out of whack by a few percentage points, but it's sort of come into line at the end here. But the suggestion is that a lot of people have got to the polls with a protest vote right and that's what i've certainly heard when i've been talking to people who are casting a vote yesterday mm. most people are going i don't like either of the candidates it's kind of the devil you know or the devil you don't so many people have gone straight down the middle to these independents right which has been the shock this election mm. and cast a vote there and can polls take into account a protest vote maybe not
0: yeah you have been living and breathing this campaign over the last month what do you think it'll be remembered for andrew I
3: think it's going to be remembered for getting just a bit personal, right? I I was talking to a mate the other day, and yes, there have been some flagship flagship policies, but no-one's been talking about what either of the candidates have promised. Scott Morrison was suggesting people can raid their super, which is what New Zealand does if you want to buy a house, and Anthony Albanese's had some policies around nursing and bolstering uh, minimum wage and things. But it's always been down to the flubs on the campaign Mm. trail, right, whether... Albo could remember the key points that he's laying out in his policy. Scott Morrison tackling a seven-year-old at a football game. You've also got to remember, week two, Anthony Albanese tested positive for COVID. Everyone was predicting that would derail the whole thing. So I think the last six weeks are going to be remembered for the more chaotic moments and less of the robust policy debate.
0: All right. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Like I say, I know it has been a really big weekend for you, so we really appreciate you getting up early. That's One News Australia correspondent, Andrew McFarlane. After the break on Q&A, DHB's days are numbered. In just five weeks, Health New Zealand will be launched with billions of dollars in funding. But have you actually stopped to wonder what it'll change for you? Next, we'll ask Andrew Little to lay it out for us. Hōki we welcome back to Q&A. Health was the big winner in Thursday's budget, with more than $11 billion committed over the next four years. A big slab of that goes towards setting up and funding Health New Zealand, which will replace our DHB systems alongside the Māori Health Authority from July 1st this year. But the healthcare sector has been under massive pressure for years. We simply don't have enough staff, and COVID-19 has only made things harder for those on the front lines. So what's going to change? I sat down with Health Minister Andrew Little and began by asking how we should measure the success of Health New Zealand and the Māori Health Authority.
1: Look, there's still a lot of establishment stuff to do. What you will have in place is two organisations. Um, They will have established um, a whole range of arrangements um, with them engaging with uh, uh, GP, the GP sector, aged residential care, all those frontline health services. What you will also see is a hospital sector where decisions are being made um, on a nationwide basis, not on a region-by-region basis. So you'll see that sort of stuff. The reality is, you know, come 1 July this year, um, uh, uh, a health worker working and currently a DHB will not see a lot of difference on day one in their day-to-day work, who they report to, the work that they do. Change will happen over time, there's about getting new systems in place and then the ability to get the, the benefit of um, efficiencies, put more resource into frontline healthcare. Mm. Um, that will that will take a while to get there. It won't be straight away, but we will get there.
0: So people are going to be anxious to see change quickly, aren't they? What, what about from the perspective of someone accessing the healthcare system? What changes will I notice?
1: I think what you will see well, the people who are struggling to get access to healthcare will notice within a year. Um, a difference in their ability to get access to health care. Give me an so,
0: example for something like
1: that. Well, I think you, know, you think about people in, in more kind of remote or isolated communities, often rural communities, if you're Māori, if you're Pacific, uh, and you have not had access to health care or uh, a doctor or a nurse practitioner ever or for a long time. Um, I'm confident that uh, within a year we will have arrangements in place where. People in those sort of circumstances will find it easier mm. to get to see somebody and not wait until they're so sick they have to go to hospital to get there.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Maori Health. The Maori Health Authority has received forty-two million dollars a year for the next four years to commission new services. So that's the money that goes to commissioning. And in the context of crown expenditure.
1: That's not very much. Um, but that's not the whole picture for them. And there's
0: their It's the commissioning services, though, right?
1: That's that's new commissioning services. So there's a whole lot of current commissioning of Kaupapa Māori Health Services that sits with mainly with the Ministry and the DHBs that will transfer into um, the Māori Health Authority. There's the money that was appropriated last year, the balance of the $240 million. Actually, what they will over... Over a four-year period, they will have roughly $1.8 billion Mm. in commissioning money to use for Kaupapa Māori health services. But the other thing, and the real strength of the Māori Health Authority is they are at the decision-making table right throughout the health system. So it's not just about their independent commissioning powers, it's their ability to influence and have Mm. decision-making rights um, on a whole lot of other spending that the health system does to make sure that we're doing better for Māori.
0: Like I say, and I'm sure you're aware, especially Mm -hmm. heading into an election year, the Mm -hmm. public is going to be anxious for results. And some of the criticism Mm -hmm. towards Labour over the last few years has centred around delivery. Aspiration is one thing, Mm -hmm. but actually getting stuff done is entirely different. It's interesting to compare these reforms with the other big injection that you've put into health in the last few years. And that was, of course, the uh, 2019 budget when you committed $1.9 billion into mental health. I have a really simple question for you. Are mental health services in New Zealand today meaningfully better than they were three years ago?
1: Yes they are because we have more than 900 additional people on the front line of mental health services that were not there two, two and a half years ago. In the month of March we had roughly 20,000 people getting access to frontline mental health services that they could not get access to two, two two and a half years ago. And we are partway through. We're roughly halfway through implementing the big programme that was part of that $1.9 billion investment. When we got the Hauranga report in 2018, it said the biggest gap is in frontline mental health services for those with mild to moderate mental health Mm. issues. Not the people who need to see a psychiatrist or a Mm. clinical psychologist, people who need talk therapies, people who need someone to help them through uh, anxiety, low-level depression and we've now got nearly half the enrolled patient population Um, who have access to those services And we're doing the rest over the next sort of two, two and a half years
0: I'm not going to say there hasn't been any progress Because mm. clearly there has been in some areas But those in the sector are concerned it's not coming nearly fast enough Sean Robinson from the Mental Health Foundation says Not much has changed for many people at all We really have not got the systematic change that we were looking for And a lot of time has been wasted And of course the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission in March Issued a report that showed that while some progress has been made It has been bitsy, it has been... Slow and maybe I'm paraphrasing here, but it's been underwhelming in certain areas. Do you accept that?
1: What I accept is the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission's report at the end of last year that said specifically in relation to that um, primary mental health care process is that it is making good progress and, and tracking as expected. That was also the finding of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet's implementation unit. The Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission's report earlier this year was really focused on specialist and acute services, mm-hmm. and they are right, not a lot has changed. Fortunately, why we, is that well, well um, because the investment we made in, in two thousand and nineteen was focused on the where the biggest gap was mm. people who don 't need to see a psychiatrist, people who aren 't acutely unwell but who need help with. the the mental health issues that they've got so we have made progress there we haven't made as much progress as we would have liked with the acute and specialist end of mental health, that's why in this budget we've put $100 million to do that we've got got workforce to build and that is challenging, we know that we've got crisis teams we have to increase and Mm. we will do that um, and we've got child and adolescent mental health services that we have to beef up as well. All of that we can now do with $100 million we've got in this with year's budget. With the
0: benefit of hindsight, was it a mistake not to prioritise things at the acute end? Only because, of course, people who are suffering acute mental health problems are more likely, for example, to die by suicide.
1: I think what the Heara Oranga report was saying is that we have a lot of services in place for acute, and, yep, they are. There are a lot of people turning up mm. to them. But a lot of people turning up to them unnecessarily because the other services aren't there. Right. So they are saying, let's get in place the, that, that early-stage um, set of services that done well and done properly prevents people from having to, to go to the more acute end. Yep. So that's what we've been doing. It doesn't mean to say... Um, uh, you know, we ignore what's happening at the q we aren't. I mean, one thing this government has, not, has never done with mental health and the challenges it's got is ignore what's going on. We've started with... Um Uh, that Mm. frontline mental health services. We're now going into acute specialist services and we'll make a difference there
0: too. One of the criticisms from those in the sector is that despite the He Aura Oranga um, inquiry, despite the massive slab of funding that has been injected into the sector, your government has never produced an overarching
1: implementation plan. Why is that? But that's not correct. We produced Kia Manawanui at the end of last year, which is the 10-year plan.
0: I've, I've read Kia Manawanui and it lays out a great vision for what mental health services in New Zealand should look like. It's yep. aspirational, absolutely, but there's no, there are no um, refined targets in there. There are no, There's no specificity as to who is responsible for what, for when, how we should measure success.
1: Um, it, one of the things we've learned, from, I guess, from the pandemic is that uh, a, a big disruptor like that turns up and all the best intentions we have. Have, you know, conceived years earlier, suddenly get kind of blown out of the water. So, we've kept the plan um, as here's the vision we have, here's what we need to achieve, um, and then with a commitment to resourcing and implementing that over time. I guess that's the
0: other the point though isn't it like there is no actual implementation plan and that's the concern from those in the sector they say hey it's good we all know where we want to go we yeah. agree on where we want to go yeah. but yeah. we don't know how we're going to get there unless we actually put some targets in place
1: uh, well, and the other challenge we know also right across the health sector is the workforce issues and this is an international problem yeah. so um, I'm not going to go making big promises about, yep, we're going to have X number of people within that period of time, because right now we are working really hard in a highly competitive international market to fill the health workforce yeah. gap, uh, gaps that we've got. So um, we have the plan, we have the commitment, we have a demonstration. Well,
0: we don't have the plan. We've, well, we've got the aspiration, but a, what you're saying is we can't have a plan because we don't have the people to actually fulfil them.
1: Um, we well, we have... Uh, That's what you're saying. No, we don't. We have, we do have a plan. We know where we need to get to. We've made the start. We've make a, made the ongoing commitments and investments. We are putting in place um, the mm. measures that we said we would put in place and we always knew that that was going to take time. It is, but but we are making progress. Okay, we are well, making
0: progress. Let's talk a little bit more about the staffing. So, from the pre-budget announcements this week, um, 18.7 million dollars is going into enhance existing specialist child and adolescent mental health and addiction services. Yep. The Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission in March said the wait time for young people accessing mental health care was still a big concern. So yep. that funding should allow for 1,300 more young people yep. to enter those facilities. But how many more staff do you need to provide those services?
1: I mean, not enter not facilities, but 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 be seen, because a lot of them don't right. Admit it. They get to see a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist. Um, so, look, we know we've got gaps, and they. It is how, va- how many more staff? It, it is. Well, I can't tell you, but it is variable across the country. And the thing about child and adolescent mental health is that it is it is kind of the specialist end of a specialist field, and um, and so we you know we work pretty hard to recruit these very um, highly specialised uh, people into that particular area. we don't area. know how many people we need to recruit? But we know, we know we have a challenge with getting young people who need specialist mental health services in front of a specialist. We know we have vacancies in um, a number of places across the hospital network. We will fill those vacancies and, um, and that will improve our ability to see children much more quickly.
0: But you're not answering the question. How many, how many people do we need to fill those vacancies? I,
1: I can't give you the number of how many we, need, um, we will need. We have a number of vacancies at the moment. We know, what I look at is the waiting times the time taken for young people to, to get to see a specialist. Mm. We know that for young people, it's roughly less than a third get to see a specialist within two days of referral. Right. Compare that to adults and it's roughly two thirds get to see a specialist within two days. That is not right for kids. Kids' idea of time is see, way, more, it's way more constrained than adults. Everyone agrees with that. So
0: what, what, what I look at, though, is the implementation. And, and this, is, this is, again, the problem. So the money, the funding, that's all great. The aspiration is great. But, again, it's getting things done. And if we don't even know how many staff we need in order to achieve these goals, um, surely that's going to make for issues when it comes
1: to... So Health NZ, Health NZ will have, um, uh, as now, the mm. w- will take over operating the hospital services and the acute mental health facilities, Um, they will know where the acute need is and that will be given priority. But the critical thing is the funding is there um, to address that problem that we know is... The
0: there. funding is there, but the staff aren't there. So nurses and mental health nurses are both in Category 2 under the government's new Immigration Green List. That means they don't receive ultimate prioritisation for residency in New Zealand if they want to come here. Why haven't they been prioritised in the same way as a doctor?
1: Um, they get greater priority to get a visa to get into New Zealand. What they, what they have to do is they have a two-year work requirement before they get their residency visa. Yeah, And the reason for that is that... Um, the demand for nurses is across the board. It's not just in the public system. It's in residential care. It's in um, GPs, clinics and what have you. And what we know from past experiences, um, and this is the big complaint from residential care and the GPs is that they recruit a nurse from offshore and the minute they get their residency they go off to the DHPs because there is a pay differential between the two. But like you say, there's a shortfall across the board. So, so surely
0: getting nurses in, it doesn't matter where they end up ultimately, so long as we're getting nurses into New Zealand um, that's it all does,
1: that matters. It does if you're running a retirement home or a GP's clinic and the person who you recruited six months later goes off to the DHP.
0: But at the moment so they've got no one. So if, if, the, if it's uh, if the decision is to have either no one, like they have at the moment, or to have someone come in for six months who then goes to work for a DHB, surely that second option is still better?
1: Um, they want stability. They want somebody who they recruit to be there for a, um, a period of time that means they can stabilise their practice. It also means that we have time to deal with the broad range of remuneration issues that we're dealing with nurses. Um, we uh, Thought we'd resolved it with nurses in the hospitals. Yeah. We're still waiting for them to to pick up the deal that's on the table for them. We've got um, but, now we've got nurses in doctors' clinics and in aged residential care. We've got to sort out their pay issues too.
0: So stability is more important. I mean, stability with with zero nurses is better than. Instability with a nurse who's there for six months.
1: Um, yeah, I think talk to the talk to the people managing retirement um, homes about um, about that. But but I mean, I there's not
0: it's not just reti- but it's not just people in the aged care sector, is it? I mean, it's child and family health nurses, community health nurses, critical care nurses, emergency care nurses, medical nurses, surgical nurses, paediatric nurses, nurses, mental health nurses. I've gone through the full list. I could go on. None of those are fast tracked in the new immigration
1: green list. Um, no, you've got it wrong. They are fast tracked. They will get their visa. Not, not compared get to a work. doctor. They'll get their work visa, and they have a two-year period to work, and then they will get their residency. The doctor but, but will get the residency because because there is nowhere else for the doctor to be employed.
0: Uh, okay, except for Canada or or Australia uh, well or that, the UK.
1: That's the international. Com- no, uh, oh, so this is it. the
0: thing though. if you are a nurse looking yeah. looking at moving overseas at the <coughs> moment. And you go, right, well, New Zealand's not going to pay me as much as Australia or Canada or the UK, even. Maybe there will be conditions that would entice me to working in New Zealand. And you look at New Zealand and you say, right, okay, I've got a, a, from, from the start of July, I can apply to be here. But then once I've arrived in New Zealand, I'm going to have to work for two years. At that point, I can then apply for residency. Don't know how long that's going to take. And it's maybe after three years that I can buy a home in New Zealand. It's hardly enticing compared to the situation that a doctor would find themselves in.
1: Um, what, it, what it says is for the nurse who wants to work here is that they, um, who recruit whoever recruits them into their nurse role is they will have to work for that person for a minimum of two years. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So that's... An, I, that's, that is not at all unreasonable.
0: After the break, there's a drug that causes massive harm in New Zealand, which the government has been urged to crack down on but hasn't booze. And Andrew Little tells us that change could be on the way. Kia ora te, we welcome back. At the start of this year, we brought you concerns from hospices in New Zealand, whose fundraising capacity had been severely impacted by COVID-19. Despite crying out for more government assistance to make up the funding shortfall, some hospices have been forced to cut some of their palliative services. The director of Tōtara Hospice in South Auckland told us it was almost an existential crisis.
3: We've already made cuts, and that is a moral and social wrong for palliative need in South Auckland, and it's a
4: story which is similar across our sector. Um, If we go under or become a shadow of ourselves, 40,000 care interventions and growing
3: will land in Middlemore and Auckland City Hospitals. They're already buckling. Our partners and colleagues in primary care are already buckling. For the system, that's unacceptable. For patients and families, it's unforgivable.
0: Now, a couple of days after that interview, Andrew Little reached out and met with Tortora Hospice. Last week, he spoke with representatives from the national body, Hospice New Zealand. But although hospices nationwide say they have a funding shortfall of almost $40 million, they received no extra stopgap funding in this year's budget
1: hospices are funded through, at the moment through contracts with DHBs. Those contracts come up for renewal. Um, uh, when Health NZ takes over, they will take over those contracts and it'll be for Health NZ and the hospice providers to negotiate their funding for the future. Okay. So... They
0: they need a stopgap. I mean, you you know this. Hospices have been crying out for help. Tōtara Hospice in South Auckland has had to reduce inpatient beds. They've made 16 people redundant throughout the course of the pandemic, not because people are dying less frequently, but because they don't have the money they need to operate. And I know that you have met with them, and they still are sitting there not able to provide basic services.
1: Um, So their funding is through agreements with... um, at the moment, the DHBs, and very soon it'll be Health New Zealand. So that is the time for them um, to pick up their um, their uh, financial issues when they're negotiating their funding arrangements. I met with them this week. There is a short-term issue they have raised with me. I've undertaken to go and do to do some work on that. But in the end, I think their big um, their big complaint is that. Because up to now they've been negotiating multiple different arrangements with different DHPs, there's no consistency, there's no formula that applies. I'm sympathetic to that view, but that is something that with the health reforms we can actually address. Well, I think Health, is it... health, health New Zealand is the one. Um, Uh, source, the one one Mm. outfit that is going to be contracting with them can actually introduce some consistency across the board in terms of that.
0: You have extended dental grants to low-income New Zealanders to $1,000 as per the Labour Party manifesto. Where are the 20 new mobile dental clinics that were also included in that manifesto policy?
1: Yep, and that still remains um, a commitment. Um, but on the, on the dental policy and increasing the, the grant to $1,000, what we've also done is to relax the conditions around that. So it's not just for people on a benefit, it's for low-income people, and it's not just for, you know, one-visit, um, every so many years, any time they need to see a dentist and they've got to get treatment, then they qualify And providing them the, the um, income conditions, they, they qualify so for that grant.
0: What about the, the dental clinics? Then? So,
1: that- um, yep, that, that remains a commitment, but um, it's a three-year term of Parliament, and so we have three terms to put that in.
0: There's one other point I want to ask you about. And I always come back to this every time we have an interview. One of the key recommendations from the Mental Health Inquiry was that your government takes a stricter approach to alcohol laws, and in particular, alcohol advertising. So far, nothing has changed. Do you support greater restrictions on alcohol advertising in New Zealand?
1: Yeah, and you're about to see uh, the Ministry of Justice and Minister- Ministry of Health um, will be um, joining together on a review of our current um, alcohol legislation. I think the had a Oranga report and other reports since, certainly the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission uh, and a whole range of public health experts all say actually doing better in terms of access to alcohol will make a big difference to the health state of New Zealand. So we will be um, taking action to review the current law.
0: How long will that take and when might changes be introduced?
1: Um, These things will be roughly halfway through the year, so um, look, I I imagine it'll be sometime um, part way through next year that we'll start to see some recommendations coming forward. Okay.
0: Finally then, um, COVID-19. It's extraordinary we can have an interview and only get to the pandemic at this stage. Cases are surging overseas, we're heading into winter. We're likely to be having a winter surge in New Zealand at exactly the same time as Health New Zealand is being established. Are you worried about what it'll mean for our health system to have those events coincide?
1: Well, well, first of all, what I've seen in terms of the establishment of Health New Zealand, the Māori Health Authority, and working with the DHBs and the Ministry of Health, I'm confident that there will be a seamless transition of those frontline functions, including the the COVID-19 response. Secondly, a lot of work we've been doing, particularly around the um, flu immunisation campaign, um, is all about, um, as we did with COVID, doing everything we can to keep that pressure off the hospitals. Now, we know that during winter time, there's increased admissions to hospital for respiratory conditions, often as a consequence of flu, and now we've got COVID and there's RSV and so on as well. But all the work that has been done in the last few months um, in terms of both COVID and flu and other conditions, has been doing everything we can to make sure that as we get to the peak of winter, we are keeping the pressure off the hospital system, as we successfully achieved throughout COVID.
0: I know it's been a big week. I know you've got a big week ahead of you. Tiernan O'Keeffe, thanks for your time. up. that is Health Minister Andrew Little. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it all my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, or find us on Twitter, or if you really prefer, Facebook. After the break, after years of work, the government has released its emissions reduction plan. James Shaw on his aspirations and the delicate art of pleasing everyone and no one in politics. Climate change is my generation's nuclear-free moment. You get the feeling that quote will never, ever go away. But almost five years since Jacinda Ardern uttered those famous words as she campaigned to become Prime Minister, her government has released its plan for reducing New Zealand's emissions. On Q&A, the thing that struck us was how quickly the plan fell out of the public's collective attention, off the front pages of the news websites and into a blurry future of offshore carbon credits and plans to make plans. Climate Change Minister James Shaw is with us this morning. Kia ora. Kia ora. Am I wrong? Look, Jack, uh
2: It's not like we've been doing nothing for the last five years, right? One of the first things that we did when we got into government was um, ban the exploration for new offshore uh, sources of fossil fuels. That was pretty controversial, if you remember it. The Zero Carbon Act set up the framework that this plan sits under. So this is the first statutory legal plan that the country has ever had to reduce greenhouse gas emissions.
0: What is the single toughest call you've made in this plan? What's the most ambitious thing, the thing that is going to be the least politically popular? Well, there are different answers to the different <laughs> questions, Jack. OK, the, the OK, well, what's the bravest call you've made in this plan? Uh,
2: well, look. Let me, I think the, the most significant thing in the plan uh, is the decarbonising industry fund, right? There's $600 mm. million dollars there. That's a 12 times increase or an 11 times increase over what we've spent over the like, course of the last few years for something that has been actually wildly effective at starting to bring down um, industrial greenhouse gases. So we've gone with something that we know works and we know we're up against the clock. So we're actually putting the majority... Of, or the largest single share of our resources into things that we already know work. Because we have to, right? We're out of time to kind of, you know, when it comes to that first emissions budget, you, you know, there's no, not, not much for inventing new things.
0: So that will make a significant difference in reducing New Zealand's domestic contributions to, to, um, to greenhouse gases. Yeah. But what's the bravest thing you did? What's the bravest thing? In the, I, I want something that's politically I, unpopular okay, in this place. Well,
2: I'll tell you what, it's, I, I think that it's been underreported, but... Uh, there's something called Vehicle Kilometres Travelled, right, which is one of, the, one of the new targets in the transport chapter of this, which is to reduce uh, that measure by 20% over the course of, uh, of this first plan. Now, that is actually a huge change in the way that we get around as a country, especially in our big cities in Auckland and Wellington, Christchurch, Tauranga, Hamilton, Palmerston North. It actually involves reassigning road space. It means actually having more walkable cities, actually more livable cities, so I think that the outcome will be a better place for everyone to live in.
0: But that's well, the outcome as opposed to the steps getting
2: there. Well, right? it's, it's always tough, right, yeah. to, to kind of induce change. We, we made some, I think, very bad decisions some decades ago, which have left us with huge reliance mm. on our motor vehicles. But you can see here in Auckland, take the Northern Busway, for mm. example. When that was being constructed, everyone was going, you'll never get Aucklanders out of here, you'll never get those North Shore people mm. out of their cars. Now, that is the single, you know, like mm. that that route is, is so heavily oversubscribed that even no, talking about converting it to rail over the course of, the, yeah. of, of some decades.
0: But I suppose the difference here is that, is that you've, got, you've, set out, you've laid out the ambition, right, for yeah. kilometres travel to reduce that, but we don't actually have the function by, by which we're going to do it. And that nothing is mandated in the plan that says, right, we're going to change all of these specific roads... These are the ones that we're going to convert into public transport. That's the stuff that is politically unpopular that we have to face if we are to meet our targets.
2: Yeah, well, I've got to tell you, that. so the, the um, Ministry of Transport, when they gave us their chapter of the plan, it was about the size of where the act- the total plan has ended up. Yeah. So the biggest problem there was actually to try to fit, fit everything in. They've actually done a really good job over the course mm. of the last couple of years. You'll remember that they, they had a big consultation on the future of transport and how to decarbonise transport at the beginning of last year, made a lot of kind of key decisions. Mm about that. That's going to affect things like the next government policy statement on, on transport. It's going to affect things like how we fund transport. We spend about $7 billion mm. a year on transport, which barely these days touches the sides.
0: you can understand my point here. A criticism of this plan is that we have waited years. I mean, we have had a Labour-led government in power for, for five years now. You've been in your position for some time and yet there is very little detail around a sure. lot of this stuff. The clash for clunkers, absolutely no detail. We don't know who qualifies. We don't know how much they'll get. What we do know is that the trial will only affect, affect 0.06% of our vehicle fleet.
2: Well, I think it's really important that you run a trial because you know, um, those kinds of programmes have had mixed results overseas. We want to make sure that we develop one that's you know, going to work and going mm. to achieve the policy objective, which is taking inefficient vehicles off the roads, give low-income families more transport options than they currently have available to them. So you don't want to kind of... You, you know, I, th- I think having a trial is a really
0: important part of that. What, what is the biggest thing included in this plan that might not have been included if you were not involved and the Greens were not involved? You wouldn't have a plan.
2: Really? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, if you, if, well, like I said, the Zero Carbon Act set up the legal framework to require all governments, no matter who's in government, legally mandated... And you know, to 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 have emissions reductions plans affecting our domestic economy, we have never had one before. And I was the person who, in our last term of government, pushed put, the
0: zero carbon act zero through.
2: through. Yeah. So n- now we're kind of living with a. Okay, that's a clever that. answer. That's a no, that's a clever
0: answer. What is the single biggest policy within this plan that would not have been there if not for the Greens? Uh,
2: that's that's a tough call. I, I so we went through and uh, there's about thirty something, uh, um, kind of areas where you'll see a, a strong resemblance to things that the Green Party has campaigned on in the past, right? And that is in part because we're there, in part that that's because when you ask people to go away and ha- say, how do you reduce emissions, you come to the same conclusions that the Greens came to 10 or 20 years ago and you go, oh, maybe we should be actually getting around to that. So, you know, I, I think that you will see uh, kind of if you like, our fingerprints mm. all, all the way through it. My point, though, is that if people want to see stronger climate action, right, then the, in the next government, when we're writing the next plan, then in 18 months' time they'll have the chance to vote for parties like the Greens mm. who are sh- want, want to see stronger
0: and faster climate action. I want to quote to you uh, a line from your cabinet paper from October last year. You said, New Zealand's a small actor and cannot unilaterally prevent the adverse effects of climate change. Our ability to influence depends on us, leading by example. How will New Zealand's emissions profile impact the world's biggest emitters, the likes of the United States, China and India?
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, less about those and more about how we're starting to see our impact in other countries with similar emissions profiles to ours, like Ireland. So, Ireland, um, like New Zealand, have got a, a very big agricultural sector that forms part of, you know, form, mm. forms the kind of basis of their economy. They've also got Greens in government uh, in Ireland as well. They've also developed a, a plan that shares a lot of similar similarities with ours. We are talking to them about how to construct a, a framework for reducing um, agricultural greenhouse gases, including the use of pricing mechanisms. And we're the first country in the world, remember, even though we don't have it yet, we're mm. the first country to legislate for, for a price on agricultural emissions. So we're starting to have influence on other players and internationally through, through the areas where... Um, we do have a difference with most yeah. other OECD countries.
0: The truth is, to, to meet our targets under the Paris Accord, we're still going to need to buy two-thirds of our emissions in the form of offshore carbon credits. Is that
2: leadership? It's incredibly frustrating, Jack, and it's a sign of how long it's taken us to get started, right? If, if, if we'd actually started 30 years ago, we'd be able to do the whole lot onshore. But actually, because because it has taken us so long to actually get to a policy mm. setting that says, no, we want to focus on doing our fair share domestically and actually because the lag that it mm. takes between when you make a decision and when it has an effect, unfortunately, that means that we're just not going to be able but to... do isn't there still a, still a good argument... No, 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 and I know, I'm
0: sure. I know that there, this is an argument that was forwarded for, for, for decades maybe in, in New Zealand, but isn't there still a good argument to say, you know what, and excuse the term, but when it comes to emissions... In the global picture of emissions, we are pissing into the wind. It's really the big players, the US, China, India, the EU, that matters. Come
2: on, Jack. It, New Zealand's population is about the same size as Los Angeles, right? Mm. So what you're making there is an argument that Los Angeles should not be acting on climate change because it has a small population. And if Los Angeles can get off the hook, so can New York, so can Paris, so can London, so can Mexico City. Right? All, all We're all part of the system. Well, it's whether
0: or not we Everybody, lead, though, isn't it? It's whether or not we, we, we take that leadership position and, and actually, you know, or, or we say, you know what, we'll wait until America completely electrifies its vehicle fleet. We'll, le- we'll allow them to lead the policy and technology on that front and then we will be a follower but Jack the US's emissions have actually
2: fallen faster than ours and it's because they have adopted those technologies in particular Mm. in energy and transport faster than we have so actually we are importing US vehicles because they have moved faster on some of these things than we have
0: we talked about agricultural emissions and I know you're always asked about this but at the moment agriculture is not supposed to come under the ETS until 2025 Mm. By not making our largest emitting industry pay for its emissions at this point with an election next year, are you concerned that a future government will further delay bringing agriculture into the ETS?
2: This is why it's so important that the Greens are back in government at the end of next year, to make sure that we actually do uh, follow through on that commitment. You know, it it is really important that that happens. And you can see some of the blowback this week, because people are saying, hang on, why are people who are on the, you you know, like... Uh, kind of regular folks who drive around in vehicles paying for their emissions farmers aren't paying for their emissions but farmers are getting benefit out of the mm. climate emergency response fund that we've set up right and and so you know it is really important that everybody does their their fair share here uh, and i think we've established the direction for that we've committed to it we've got to make policy decisions by the end of year at the mm. end of this year about the shape of that I think it is very important, not just for everybody, uh, you know, who's currently paying into the system, but actually for the sector itself, because the ability to say that we're a, you know, kind of a clean, green, 100% pure uh, brand well, is, is wrong? so important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's so that th- yeah. those kind of statements underpin, and increasingly we've got big customers internationally mm. who are saying to our agricultural industry, look you know, if, if you don't cut your emissions, mm. we're not gonna buy from you anymore. Mm. So it's, it's about value add, but it's also about protecting the industry as it, as it is at the moment to ensure that actually, we're actually still able to, to back up those claims with any integrity.
0: My point at the start of the interview was that, you know, for, for what is an incredibly detailed plan, it was interesting to me that, that a lot of people seem not to care too much about it because they don't yet see the costs that they are likely to bear personally at this stage. Next year, the Climate Commission will publish its next report, which concerns a pathway for reducing emissions between 2025 and 2030. How much more painful is that period going to be?
2: Look, I, I don't know, to tell you the honest truth. I'll have to see what the what the Commission comes through with next year. But the whole point of the scheme that we set up under, under the Zero Carbon Act was to say, you know on every five years, Mm -hmm. we'd get this report from the Commission that would tighten up the um, settings based on the most Mm. recent science. So even since their last report came through a year ago, we've had, you know, huge leaps in, in... Understanding the impact of climate change around the world. Mm. Um, We're getting much closer to that 1.5 degree threshold than we thought, much sooner than we thought. That's probably going to take more radical action, right? So you can see things are likely to tighten up over time. What do you make of the Australia results? Well, it's a win for the climate. I mean, if you look at it, there was actually... Although Labour obviously won heaps more seats, Mm. there was a swing in the vote away from Labour to the Greens on the left, so the Greens have got more seats there. Um, And there was, of course, this movement from... Uh, liberals to those teal independents on the right. And the common platform there on the left and the right is climate change. And so Australians are clearly saying that they're fed up with the lack of progress mm-hmm. and that they want the next government to, you know, whoever, whoever is that government, to take stronger action on climate change than they have. So uh, my view is big win for the climate in the
0: Australian election. A couple of random questions to finish up. You will have seen that the climate change vigilante group, the tire extinguishers, who have been deflating the tyres of uh, SUVs and four-wheel drives to protest emissions. Do you support their actions?
2: Well, the Green Party has always supported non-violent direct action, right? Like this idea that actually, Mm. you know, in a democratic society, there is a a place for that. There is a place for people to call attention Mm. to that. I think, to tell you the honest truth, it's probably counterproductive because, you know, people, it'll just kind of create... know, more resistance on the other other side, but it is a sign of how frustrated people Mm. are getting at the lack of action and the fact that actually we do need to dramatically cut our greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. People are worried about the future of their children and their grandchildren and they're starting to look at other people in their street and say, well, hang on, how come I'm doing all the heavy lifting here and don't you care about my kids?
0: Finally, I know there has been a lot of reporting on the $200,000 in New Zealand on air funding, that has been granted to a documentary about your MP, Chloe Warbrick. What hasn't been reported is that the executive producer of the film is the mother of your chief of staff. Is that an appropriate relationship, given the public funding? Well, Jack, look, I've got a a couple of things to say about
2: that. First of all, the whole controversy has been stirred up by the ACT Party. And about 20 years ago, New Zealand On Air funded a documentary about Donna Awateri Huata who was at that time an ACT Party MP and they seem to have a conveniently short memory when it comes to that. Second of all, I do not think that it is appropriate to bring our staff or their families into the political debate. You know, we live in a small country, you can't choose who your relatives are, we don't ask our staff to tell their parents what jobs that they can have, Mm. right, so I just don't think that that is appropriate. And the third thing is that none of my staff come within kui of the funding decisions of New Zealand on air, so I just think it's completely inappropriate to go down that route. So to be clear, you are comfortable
0: with that as it stands? Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. That's James Shaw. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Hoki mai, welcome back. Green MP Goldricks-Gurriman got lucky with the biscuit tin of democracy this week. Her member's bill pulled from the ballot. If passed, it would make quite a few changes to our democracy. The voting age would be changed to 16, the MMP party vote threshold lowered from 5% to 4%, coattailing would be abolished, donation law would be changed and prisoners would have voting rights expanded. Auckland University Professor of Politics and Public Policy Jennifer Curtin is with us this morning. Tēnā koe. Kia ora. I'm going to controversially put the Make It 16 issue to one side. It's not that we don't want to debate it, it's just that I know that's going to take a bit of time. So we will consider that on a future episode of Q&A. But what would be the impact of lowering the party vote threshold from 5% to 4%?
4: Well, this is really important because it's one of the recommendations that came out of the 2012 um, review of the electoral system post-referendum in 2011. And what we know is that currently, the way MMP works for New Zealand is that usually you... If you're a small party you need a seat to bring in um, other members of parliament. Really only the Greens have managed to consistently mm. score five percent or more under our current system which sort of suggests that maybe the five percent threshold is too high. So with um, New Zealand First they missed out in 2008. The Conservative Party almost got to four percent mm. in 2014. So it will, it will allow potentially for more. I think when Simon Bridges was leader and others were asking for it to be lowered to less than 4%. They Mm. wanted to see three perhaps and then we would have seen top come in. Mm. So if diversity is the goal and uh, fairness in terms of how votes get translated into seats then we don't want too much wastage but nor do we want to look like Israel where you get tiny little parties holding the balance of power.
0: Yeah, it's all a balance, isn't it? I suppose if we're to look at Parliament as it stands today, which party would benefit, of the parties that are in there at the moment, which party would benefit most from having some smaller parties enter at 4%? Is it it national?
4: Well, I think the interesting thing is... (laughs) That's It's a very hypothetical, I suppose, if we thought that top were there, mm. we might get some more interesting discussions in, in the centre mm. around doing sort of important work on housing and, um, and, and social expenditure and so on. But in the current way we're set up, most minor parties have a seat in order to bring their MPs in with them.
0: One of the proposals in the Members' Bill would allow people to switch from the Māori role to the general role at at any time. Why why is that of importance?
4: Well, what we know is that up to 6,000 Māori um, want to go on to switch roles every year. They contact the Electoral Commission to do this. In advance of the 2020 election, in 2019, we saw up to 19,000 Māori contact Um, the electoral commission about that and um, they have to wait like the next one is 2024 this the argument is is that they should at least have the option before every election Mm. and this um, to change and this impacts local government elections as well which we're having this year and so and and what what else we know is that the first vote that people have is the one that is habit-making and so we really want to encourage everybody to be able to turn out to vote, and if they want to be on, a, on the Māori role or the general role, they should have the right to be able to change.
0: What would be the impact of scrapping coattailing?
4: Well, um, you know, ACT is obviously feeling the pressure here. They've managed to stay in Parliament for a really long time because of, of that provision, um, but this time they would have still been there but in other times they would have fallen away. I think the way the um, original report into electoral reform mm. was written up and, and we adopted this system from Germany, there was never an intention for the one seat threshold to manifest the results it has. And so I think most people, there were 4,700 submissions to the report that came out in 2012. A lot of people want to see this, um, this option go.
0: One of the Bill's proposals would remove restrictions on voting for people who have been overseas for more than three years. In a COVID-19 world, what impact would that have?
4: Well, that was, you know, all those folks who were trying to get home and couldn't get home, um, you know, they missed out on getting to vote if Mm. they'd been away a long time. Um, What we also know is that, at least for the Greens, they do a lot of campaigning in Australia on the ground and if those voters couldn't, if they were in lockdown in Australia or couldn't get home to vote and hadn't been home to vote, then then that may have an impact. But also we want want our people to feel enfranchised and this was an exceptional moment, the pandemic, where we, we couldn't we didn't see people coming home. From me personally, when I lived in Australia for 13 years, I came home every year to make sure I <laughs> stayed on the electoral roll.
0: <laughs> oh, you nerd. We love now it. I am. <laughs> um, a, a, lot of these, a lot of these proposals effectively concern expanding voter rights and mm. voter access. How does New Zealand rate internationally when it comes to voter
4: rights? Well, we, on the Electoral Integrity Index that's put out every year, we rank fairly highly. Mm. Um, even during the pandemic, um, despite you know our election having to be um, postponed and some challenges for campaigning because of social distancing, we scored pretty well. We don't score highest, but we're sort of in the high 70s, early 80s range. Mm. So um, and and you know there are some real benefits to our system at the moment. Um, we don't require voter ID. We don't have really restrictive voter ID rules, um, that sort of thing. And having a conversation about 16-year-olds is timely.
0: Mm. I know you keep a close eye on Australian politics as well. What, what, what did you think of last night?
4: Oh, it was so exciting, really. Um, just watching the um, the way in which not just the independents and the, the teal independents and Greens are going, I know that climate is a big issue, mm-hmm. but just, you know, seeing the way in which this two-party system that's been so rigidly two-party... Um, for that long, is now starting to diversify, and people with their local interests are asking for a different kind of representation. Um, so, close to 30% of the vote didn't go to the two major parties. Mm-hmm. So, their primary vote, both of them, is, is pretty low. Um, and this might be a real tectonic shift for the Australian party system. That's amazing, eh? 30%. That's yeah. really significant. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, Professor, uh, Professor Jennifer Curtin Tenakwe, it is always great to chat. Thank tēnā. you. Koa matu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching and nā mihi ki au Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.